Well, welcome back to the second message in our series, Stick and Stay. Say it with me, would you please? Stick and Stay. And of course, we've been using this, uh, you learned this weekend, duct tape is kind of our metaphor, our symbol, because it's so wonderful, it's so sticky, it holds everything together. And God wants us to be sticky people. He wants us to hold together. And that's what I want to think about this weekend with you. And in thinking about it, I want to tell you a story uh, about a man named Hal Nisvicki. Hal Nisvicki wrote a Time Magazine article uh, a while back in which he shared that He was very interested in the social media and thought he should find out more about it and decided that he would do it with Facebook. How many of you here, 111th, are on Facebook? Let me see your hands. All right. So many people are. And so he thought he would try it out. And he ended up with 700 Facebook friends. And he was just very proud of that and boasted about it, was excited about it. Until he realized that because of his workaholic kind of personality and having a two-year-old at home and his penchant for wanting to be alone, that he was losing his real-life friends. And so he thought to himself, I I need some real-life friends, so I'm going to take some of those virtual friends on Facebook and see if I can move them into real-life friendship relationships. So he sent out an invitation to the 700, uh, to meet him at a bar for a party. And uh, he gave them three options. They could respond, will be there, or might be there, or not coming. He had 15 people who said, will be there. He had 60 who said they might be there, and the rest said they could not be there. He figured maybe he would get 20 people to show up. Well, it was the big night And so he got all ready. He took a shower and he put his tingly man perfume on. And uh, he put a brand new pair of pants on and his most favorite shirt. And he headed for the local watering hole. And he waited. And he waited. And he waited. And a woman showed up that he didn't even know. She showed up because she was a friend of a friend of his on Facebook. And they had a short little conversation, and she left, and he sat there till midnight. Nobody showed up. Finally, he ordered a beer and sat down, and he closes his article with these poignant lines. 700 friends, and I'm drinking alone. Researchers tell us that approximately one in three Americans this weekend are lonely. And they live all around us. They live in our neighborhoods. They live with us in our homes sometimes. That's kind of sad, isn't it? They work around us. They go to school with us. Some of them are even in our churches. And the one thing that they long for is a friend. They would love to have a friend. And Jesus knew that. And so he was always, always befriending people, especially those who were shunned, like the lepers, HIV people of his day, 
or the outcasts like adulteresses and prostitutes and tax collectors or foreigners or the perceived oddball by the culture. He would befriend them and he would engage them. He would show God's love and God's grace and God's compassion for them. And the one thing that Jesus wants more than anything else is that his followers, his church, continue to exemplify that kind of behavior to the world around. Whether it's at school or at work or in our neighborhoods or in our family especially at church. He wants us to be friendly. He wants us to befriend others. He wants us to engage others for himself. And the tragedy is this. The tragedy is, if we're going to be really honest with each other, the church in many ways, unfortunately, is unfriendly. Is unfriendly. No, 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 don't misunderstand me. We can put our smiles on the weekends. And we can look good to each other. But you know what? When we really get to know each other, when you really get to know a lot of Christians, they're not a whole lot different than the people who are not Christians. They gossip and backbite and criticize and are dishonest. And when they get their feelings hurt, they form coalitions and come against you. And my goodness, why on earth, if you face that all week long in the world, would you want to come and be a part of a quote, church, community of believers who do the same thing to you, right? So a lot of people are turned off and turned away from the church because, in all honesty, oftentimes Christians don't behave that much different than the people out there in the world. And nobody, you know, if you already experience loneliness in the world, who wants to experience it in a place that you're not supposed to experience it? And that's why Jesus spoke to his followers And ask them to obey a new commandment. A commandment that he expected them to obey in the first century. And he expects us to obey in the 21st century. But so many of us forget that it's a commandment. We think it's an option, a possibility, a maybe. But no, no. Jesus says it's a commandment. I'm talking about his words in John chapter 13. So take your Bibles, your iPads, your iPods, or wherever you have your Bible on right now. And turn with me, if you will, please to um, John chapter 13, New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, always, always bring your Bible, all right? John chapter 13, and I want you to look at verses uh, 34 and 35 with me as we start out in this exciting passage, all right? John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. Here's what it says. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Love each other. I say it together. Ready? Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world around you that you are my disciples or you are my disciples followers. Fascinating passage of scripture. What Jesus, in essence, is saying here is that, look, I want you to make a difference. And in order for you to make a difference in the world, it starts by how you behave toward each other. 
Because before you can go out in the world and advertise me and talk about me, you got to make sure that at home, in the church, in your relationships with one another, that you're doing well, that you are truly exhibiting my love to each other. If you can do it in the church, then you'll be able to do it outside of the church. But don't do false advertising. Don't go outside of the church and talk about love and how different you are, and then people show up, and when they really get a taste of who you are and what you're like, they get turned off by it. So in a sense, evangelism, that is reaching out with the good news, starts by making sure I practice the result of the good news in my own relationships, in my family, in my marriage, if I'm married with my kids, in my friendships, and especially in the community known as the church. It's really important that it happens there. And Jesus says it's not an option. He says it's a commandment. So, well, how do you do that? What does Jesus mean when he says that we're supposed to love each other the way he loves us? And I boil it down to a, a very simple principle that if you can master this principle it will revolutionize your personal relationships it will revolutionize the church and it'll change the world we won't be able we won't be able to create enough multi-sites everybody want to be part of the compass church and the principle simply goes like this look at the life of jesus he chose to love others when they were at their worst as much as when they were at their best at 111 And at Hobson, let's read it together one more time. Ready? He chose to love others when they were at their worst as much as when they were at their best. A friend of me, a friend of me, a friend of mine said to me uh, this weekend, that's hard to do. And she's absolutely right. That is hard to do. Would you agree that's hard to do? I mean, it's easy to love people when they're at their best, isn't it? It's easy to love your spouse when they're at their best, your children when they're at their best, your friends when they're at their best, other church members at their best, when the pastor's at his best. It's easy to love people like that. And the disciples could be at their best sometimes. I think they were at their best when they left their businesses behind, their boats and their nets, and they took the risk of following Jesus. I really think they were at their best. I think they were at their best when they confessed that Jesus Christ was more than a prophet, that he was indeed the Son of God. Oh, man, they were good. And I think they were at their very, 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 very best after the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, when they went out and proclaimed the gospel in the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit and sacrificed their lives so that people would hear about God's good news. I think they were at their ultimate best at that point, don't you? But these guys, who could be at their best, could also be at their worst. And I think the incident we're going to look at in John 13, which gave birth to these words of Jesus, has got to rank up there as like the one or number two worst experience of the disciples. Their worst behavior. And yet, in spite of that terrible behavior, Jesus... (laughs) still love them. That's a powerful example for us. The incident I'm talking about starts at the top of John chapter 13. So let's look at verse 1. It says, Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. 
I love this next verse. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth. And now he loved them to the very end. Boy, I'd I'd underline that if it was my Bible. It was time for supper and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything that uh, that he had and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the feet of his disciples, drying them with a towel that he had around him. And you know the story? Perhaps he goes to Peter, and he tries to wash Peter's feet. Peter says, no, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, then you can't be part of my team. And Peter says, give me a bath. And the Lord says, you don't need a bath, Peter. I'll just take care of your feet. And then Jesus announces that there's a person sitting at the table who's going to betray him. And then he sits down after this whole event. And he looks at his disciples in verse 12. And it says, after washing their feet, he put on his robe, began to sit down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example of follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. You say, okay, Dale, I hear that, but I don't see why, why you say they're, they're like at their worst at that moment. Well, Luke chapter 22 gives the backstory of what's really been taking place here. In Luke chapter 22, we discover that as they come in to uh, celebrate Passover together, that there is an argument that's taking place among the disciples. They are arguing about which one of them is going to be the greatest. Can you imagine? And in the process of arguing, they have ignored a common custom in those days. And that was that when someone entered your home, the lowliest slave in the house would wash the dirt and debris and debris off the feet of that person so that they would be clean and it was refreshing. Well, when you have men who are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in God's kingdom, none of them are about to bend their knee and wash the feet of a potential rival. You just don't do that. Pride gets in the way. And in the process of that, they forgot that one greater than all of them had entered the room, and his name is Jesus. And not a one of them, not a one of them bothered to wash his feet. I mean, okay, so they don't wash each other's feet, but at least you would think that one of them or several of them would have made their way to wash the feet of Jesus, but they totally forgot about him. You ever felt forgotten? You ever been forgotten? Somebody forgot your birthday, forgot your anniversary, you know, forgot what a good job you did. It's not fun to be forgotten. To make matters even worse, before this argument breaks out, Jesus has announced that the bread and the wine represent his life, which is about to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. His blood that's about to be poured out. And even worse than that, he's also announced that one of them will betray him. Yet it goes, shoo, 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 right by their heads. And they just start arguing about who is going to be the greatest. Now, I don't know about you, but if that had been me, Dale Hummel, I would have been ticked. I would have been angry. I would not have washed their feet. 
I would have done some very unkind things. I would probably have said some very unkind things. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. His behavior is totally different than what my behavior would have been. And what's amazing is he says that the behavior he exhibited to those men is the behavior he expects me to exhibit to you. Not just when you're at your best, which is easy for me, but when you're at your worst. And vice versa. He said, well, exactly how would you characterize Jesus' behavior to them? What's he asking me to do? First of all, he's asking me and he's asking you to choose to love others when they're at their worst as well as when they're at their best. It's a matter of choice. Jesus chose to love those men. It wasn't his feelings. It wasn't his emotions. It was an act of his will. In fact, as I read it to you there, I I love that verse. He loved them to the what? To the very end. Even when Judas comes to the garden to betray Jesus. Jesus calls him friend, and it wasn't sarcasm. Jesus loved Judas to the very end, even though he committed suicide. Jesus loved him to the very end. And he calls you and me to love each other to the very end. To the very end. It is an act of the will, but we don't always feel like loving, do we? Do you always feel like loving your spouse? (laughs) You're afraid to... Acknowledge that, right? Because, you know, they're sitting next to you, all right? Well, let me go first. I I don't always feel like loving my wife. Because sometimes things happen between us. She'll say or do something to irritate us, or somebody else irritates me, and I take it out on her or whatever. I don't always feel like like loving my children. I always feel like loving my grandchildren, though. (laughs) Don't always feel like loving the people around us. Because things happen. We get hurt by them. But you know what? Love is not about feelings. That's what our culture says. But love is not about feelings. Love is an act of the will. When I don't feel like loving, I still choose to love. It's a wonderful gift that God's given us, our will. And you shouldn't let your feelings run your life. There's no excuse for it. You've got to let God's will run your life. You've got to take your will and choose against your feelings sometimes. And that's what Jesus did. He chose, despite their bad behavior, he chose to love them. Who might you need to choose to love this weekend? Who at church may you need to choose to love this weekend? Maybe it's the senior pastor. Who do you need to choose to love? You know, love is something more than just a phrase, though. I mean, when you really love somebody, you prove it by action, right? And so Jesus does this. He now teaches us how to demonstrate that we do love others in the body so that the world can look at us and go, wow, you're different. And the first way that Jesus demonstrated his love for them at their very worst is he forgave them. He was forgiving towards them. He held short accounts. There's never a root of bitterness in our Lord's life. Even on the cross, remember those words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. All encompassing of his followers, of the Romans who were crucifying him, of the, of the Jewish uh, high priests and, and, uh, and the Pharisees and Sadducees who condemned him. Father, give them a chance to come to, their, come to grips with what they've done and please forgive them. Wow. What an amazing God, huh? Isn't Jesus amazing? I want him for my best friend. He is my best friend. 
your best friend. He's a forgiving and amazing God. And he expects you and me to be the same way. He expects us to behave in a forgiving way to each other. Say, wait a minute, I'm struggling with that whole issue. You don't know what somebody has said or done to me. And I understand forgiveness can be complex. And so I want to I direct you to an article written by Mark Driscoll, Pastor Mark Driscoll, called 10 Things Forgiveness Is Not. And you can access it on our website. Go to www. I think I have too many W's in that. Thecompass.net. All right. And click on my blog. All right, that's to get you on my blogs. I'm going to start blogging regularly now, I promise, all right? And you'll read the article there. But don't do it right now, please. All right? Don't go there. Don't do it. Because you're going to miss out on some really important things, all right? So don't do it. If you see somebody next to you doing it, shut their machine off, all right? Just kidding, all right? All right? You'll get there later on, okay? Because he not only demonstrated it with, with forgiveness, he also demonstrated it with an act of service. Jesus went ahead and washed the feet of those men. Now, if it had been me, I would have washed their feet with a steel brush. With an SOS pad, I would have made them bleed. I would have taken the water and the towel and thrown it in their faces. Because they forgot me. Think about this. Jesus washes their feet. He washes the feet of Peter, knowing that Peter is going to to deny him. He washes the feet of Judas knowing that Judas is going to betray him. He washes the feet of the other ten knowing that when it all comes down, when, when it all hits the fan, they're all going to run and abandon him. He washes their feet knowing they're going to kick him in the teeth. Ooh, that's hard. That's hard. It's hard to serve people when they hurt you. When they forget you, when they deny you, when they betray you. It's one thing for people to do that in the world. But when another believer, when a member of my family does that to me. Oh my goodness. It is so hard to continue to serve them. In the church, a lot of times what we do is we just quit serving. We just say, I'm done. I don't want anything more to do this. You don't recognize me. You don't appreciate me. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm always the last to know. I'm forgotten. I don't want to be part of this anymore. I'm going to sit and sulk. I'm going to write a nasty email. I'm going to get a group of people together and we're going to have breakfast and I'm going to tell them what's really going on in this church and how miserable those people are and blah, 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 right? That's the poison that happens in the work world, the real life world out there and we bring in the church and we practice the same thing. I'm not going to serve you. I'm not, you know, if you're not going to be nice to me, I'm not going to be nice to you. And then we behave that way toward each other. It's a tragedy. But not Jesus. I believe this. He washed those men's feet. He did it tenderly, and he did it with love, and he did not do it with any bad feelings. He cared deeply for them. But you know what else Jesus did? He also corrected his disciples. You see it in this passage. But he didn't correct them the way we sometimes correct each other. He didn't send an unsigned letter. (laughs) He didn't send an nasty email. He didn't get right in the face and shake his finger at them and say, you know, for what you've done to me. He didn't make threats. No, he lovingly, gracefully, driven with a spirit of forgiveness and mercy, confronted and corrected them. 
It is irresponsible of us if we don't correct each other. Don't you agree? It's irresponsible. If you have children and they disobey you, you correct them. You discipline them because you love them. If they don't pay attention to you, sometimes you have to take stronger measures, but you do it because you love them and care for them. You know, we live in a culture right now that is very, very rebellious. We live in a culture right now where there's little respect for leaders. And in some ways, I understand that because there's not a lot of respectful leaders out there. The problem is it trickles then into the church as well. And so what you have going on in the church, and I'm talking about the church in general, it's kind of a rebellious attitude toward leadership. I'm just being really transparent this weekend. I'm just, being, I'm just saying it the way it is. No use pretending, right? It happens to the church all across America. Now, I think our church is better than most, but it happens, right? I want, I, let me just make this really clear. I'm not saying you should respect and submit to your leader if he or she is promoting heresy and is, is not preaching or teaching the truth or if they're immoral, if they're practicing immorality while telling you to be moral or if they're unethical. I don't think you need to respect that and go along with that at all. I think you need to take that leader to task. But when it comes to structure and when it comes to, to strategies and styles, you know what? Sometimes you just have to agree to disagree. And that's okay. We don't, all, we don't all have to like everything. I don't like everything. My wife doesn't always like everything. She doesn't always like the way I dress or, you know, like, like the way maybe I handle the passage or I did this or a style or whatever. I mean, we don't always agree with each other. But she still loves me. She's still my wife. She still loves the church. She's still hanging in there. She's still involved in ministry, etc. And all I'm trying to say is, you know, sometimes when, when we get out of sorts with people, we can, be, we can be stinkers, can't we? We can say and do things that aren't right and aren't kind and are wrong. And somebody ought to love us enough to call us for it, right? Call us on it. And we ought not then quit and leave and go somewhere else. That's what happens all across America. Now, quit and leave, go somewhere else if they're immoral. And quit and leave and go somewhere else if they're not biblical. But if every time somebody hurts my feelings and I don't like it, I decide to go find a different sandbox to play in, that's not the church. That's not Jesus. That's not the scriptures. Sometimes I need people to call me on the carpet. Sometimes I need somebody to confront my behavior. And I need to submit and I need to obey. And I need to listen. I need to follow. I know what somebody's thinking here. There must be a real problem in the church. There's not. That's not why I'm bringing it up. Just, it's just the passage. It's what's going on. Well, you're talking about me, that email I sent. Oh, no, I'm not. Unless you really did send it. Don't take it so personally, unless it is personal, unless it's something you've got to deal with. And I also know what the other thing that's going on right now. The other thing that's going on right now is we're all, we're all thinking about somebody that needs to hear this message. It's somebody who's been misbehaving. Man, I hope they're listening. My dad tells about uh, a, a, a church service that, where he was preaching in the, in the West Indies in the late 1950s where, is where I was born. And he's preaching about sin in the life of the believer. And this is, this is the West Indies. And this guy all of a sudden shoots up in the middle of the sermon. And he points out at another guy. And he says, man, he's talking about you. <laughs> Listen, man. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. And I'm talking about you personally. Not the person next to you, not beside you, not behind you, not ahead of you. You, me. Each one of us has got to determine 
that we will change ourselves. That we, I, will obey the new commandment. And for some of us, it is a new commandment. Because we've been abusing it. And guess what happens? Guess what happens when each one of us decides to obey that new commandment and love people at their worst as well as when they're at their best? Oh my goodness, you have revival. When each of us makes that choice, when the majority of us make that choice, it begins a spiritual tsunami that changes the church. And the world looks at that and the world says, can I be part of your church? I want to be part of that. As we export that into our relationships at work and at school and in our neighborhoods and our subdivisions toward our neighbors, when we love them at their worst, like Jesus said we're supposed to do, love our enemies, remember that one? When I then do it outwardly, you have a little bit of heaven on earth. And, and that's where it starts. It starts with me. It starts with you. Can I ask you a question this weekend? 111 here at Hobson, are you willing, you, 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 are you willing to begin to obey Jesus' new commandment? Let's pray. Father, this weekend is so challenging to my life, my own personal heart, to practice what I preach. I want very much, Lord, personally, to love people in my life, in the church, outside the church, the way you would love them through your son. And I need your help. I can't do it on my own. And where I fail to do that, I ask you to forgive me, oh God. How about the rest of you? Would you ask God to forgive you for where you have been unkind, unloving, unforgiving, unserving, if that's a word. Would you forgive him? Would you ask God to forgive you for those times when you've been at your worst lately? Ask him to help you to be at your best because you're always at your best when you love others at their worst. Isn't that amazing? Would you tell God that you're willing to do your best to obey his new command? God, would you bring renewal and revival to the Compass Church by helping each of us, Lord, to take this to heart, not just another weekend come and gone, but God, take this into our souls. For your glory. Because you did it for us when you hung on that cross. Now help me help us to do it for others. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, that is so important because next weekend, we are unveiling our new sermon-based life group strategy. And I'm hoping that we get at least 60% of the Compass Church involved in our life group's taking these weekend sermons to a deeper level. And part of that experience is going to be practicing what we've talked about here as life groups, practicing that Christ-like love to each other, and as life groups, 
practicing that Christ-like love then to the people God is calling us to reach out to. And that's how we take this message that is conceptual in a sense, it's big in a sense, and we bring it down to real accountability and practical behavior. And so that's why I want you to sign up if you're willing to lead one of those groups and partner with me in teaching the message in your small group. You can do it here at the Hobson campus out the door to your right under the growth sign. And at 111th, Pastor Rich will direct you there. But it's going to be an exciting journey. Amen? Hey, you ready to go love people? Wow. I hope the response to 111 is a whole lot better than what is here. Are you ready to go out there and love people? That is so much better. Then go and do it. God bless.